and welcome to The Wardroom, a podcast dedicated to the leadership development of the U.S. Navy's engineering duty officers. I'm your host, Lieutenant Commander Matthew Horton. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Captain Brian Durant, who has been serving for the last year as part of Operation Warp Speed. Captain Durant has almost 29 years of experience as a qualified surface warfare and engineering duty officer, and he has had various assignments across the combat systems enterprise, and most recently served as the Standard Missile 3 Major Program Manager at the Missile Defense Agency. So grab a cup of coffee and join us in the wardroom. Captain, welcome to the wardroom. Hey, thank you, Matthew, and uh, happy to be here. Yes, sir. So most people listening probably don't know, but you were just a few months away from retirement when you volunteered for Operation Warp Speed. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It was May of last year. I was supposed to retire on September 1st of uh, 2020. Okay, so I've got to ask, with just a few months remaining before retirement, what motivated you, or better yet, what possessed you to volunteer for what you had to know was going to be a really tough assignment? All right. So uh, an email came out uh, from Vice Admiral Moran asking for volunteers in the major program management uh, community uh, to assist with the vaccine development. Let's see. That was a Tuesday before Memorial Day. I, I went ahead and volunteered and then I wrote to my wife and I'm like, I can't believe I just did this, but it seems like a good thing. So I was, uh, as you mentioned, the program manager for Standard Missile 3. We were just about to or had just awarded two huge contracts. Uh, the multi-year for 1B, which uh, you're very familiar with, uh, and uh, our first real production run for the Block 2A. With all that work done, and we had an ICBM intercept test uh, that was going to be postponed indefinitely, I figured the SM3 team really didn't need my leadership for the last couple of months of my tour. I thought this was a, a very worthwhile thing to uh, to throw my uh, service behind. I had some experience with biosafety level uh, labs when I was down at the Dahlgren uh, Warfare Center as a CEO there. So I thought that might contribute as well. And let's see, I, I volunteered on a Tuesday, was notified on a Wednesday that I would report Friday morning. So uh, the Friday before Memorial Day, we were all in here and you know, reported to General Ostrowski, uh, now retired, and to General Perna that uh, Friday and it's been nonstop ever since. Well, Captain, I want to say from all of us, thank you for your willingness to serve in this effort. We really do appreciate the work that you guys have been doing there. You're welcome. So can you give us a little more background on Warp Speed? You know, what the team was tasked to accomplish, general operating budget, specific authorities, etc.? I would say, first off, technically, we're no longer Warp Speed. We, um, we are now referred to either uh, internally, we call ourselves the operation, or more generally, we're, we're the federal COVID-19 response. Let's see, a little background. Uh, I mentioned it was it was stood up in May of uh, 2020, and more than once we've talked about building the airplane while you fly it. I've never seen a more true statement than this, uh, you know, how it applies to this job, but it's been absolutely impressive. Obviously, our goal was uh, the pandemic response, and our objective was to accelerate the development, manufacture, and distribution of safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines and, and uh, therapeutics to the American people. So one of the goals for accelerating that was to manufacture at risks, investing in advanced vaccine production before uh, we even knew that we were going to have a successful vaccine. Uh, That's where we took the risk in the manufacturing, knowing that we may have to throw uh, vaccines away if they were not proven uh, safe and effective. Uh, As it turned out, we did get through those uh, independent uh, strict FDA guidelines and then independent reviews by uh, American uh, Committee on Immunization Practices. I believe it is the ACIP. We, we got through our first one in uh, with Pfizer. I believe it was on December 11th. And then Moderna, a small company up in Boston that uh, a week later uh, had achieved uh, their EUA. So 
mostly have been fo- focused on vaccines. We've also gotten EUAs on three of our therapeutic uh, treatments. So uh, should you get sick, uh, we now have a way to, to give you hope that uh, you'll recover and be restored to good health. Let's see, our budget, we're tied to the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. We've obligated about $31 billion for initiatives everywhere from capacity expansion, then you know capacity expansion for manufacturing space, um, as well as some of the, the drug uh, fill finish locations, fill finishes. You manufacture the drug, you got to put it in the vials. Um, so are generally done in different locations. So fill finish, you get in the vials, and then you you put it off into your freezers and storage. Expansion, development, and testing, and then manufacture of the drugs, uh, substance, and drug products, and then distribution, ultimately, of the safe and effective vaccines and therapeutics. Most of our work has been done through BARDA, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development uh, Agency within Health and Human Services. Done a lot of work with uh, JPEO, uh, ChemBio, uh, and Army Contracting Command, too, to award and execute contracts. Wow, so you really do cover the whole of acquisitions. So can I ask what your current role is and what your responsibilities are? Yeah, so um, great question. Uh, My position has morphed over time. I came in as a uh, program manager, but uh, really it's uh, where is my talent been uh, most needed and and, uh, useful? One thing that I've been consistently responsible for throughout the uh, the program, though, has been uh, Defense Act, uh, Production Act work, the Defense Priority Allocation System and Health Resource Priority and Allocation System. So most of us as EDs are familiar with DPAS, the Defense Priority Allocation System, uh, at least to those uh, in the MDA world. DPA also allows authority for other departments to have priority rating capability over other contra or other uh, materials besides just defense. The DPA authorities allow the U.S. government to require uh, companies to prioritize our contracts against or above and beyond others. COVID-19 response was clearly critical. Uh, it is uh, identified as a national defense response, so it falls under that, that authority. And that prioritization flows from the primary contracts we have with uh, each of our main suppliers, whether that be vaccine and therapeutic suppliers or some of the suppliers for the equipment and manufacturing space we use. I learned two things uh, as I came on. First, the Department of Commerce owns the DPAS authority. We actually had to request that from from Department of Commerce, the ability to exercise uh, DPA or DPAS. Uh, there's a slight difference, but uh, ability to exercise DPAS out of uh, health and human services for the Operation Warp Speed efforts. So we got that uh, approval in August. The uh, other thing I would say, um, you know, we've all heard of, uh, or a lot of the EDs have heard of DPAS. Uh, HR Pass, I mentioned uh, the different secretaries have different authorities. HR Pass, Health Resources Priority and Allocation System. If it's a medical resource, a drug, a vaccine, anything that goes into manufacturing drugs and vaccines, PPE, the equipment, that is under the uh, cognizance of uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, and they have the ability to rate that. Uh, For example, we uh, rated most of our vaccines with that, but also needles and syringes and some PPE. We've um, authorized the use of uh, the DPA and DPAS and HR Pass uh, 19 times uh, since October uh, for vaccine therapeutics manufacturing. Most of my time these days is spent with the ancillary kits. So when you get a vaccine, it's highly likely that that needle that gets put in your arm, I've had some uh, involvement in getting it into that box uh, that we ship out to the administration sites. 
we've moved hundreds of millions of needles and syringes from across the U.S. and, and overseas uh, into our kitting sites and have hundreds million more coming. We have uh, 700 million doses of vaccine, give or take, a little bit less than that, that we're going to need to administer into the American public's two doses, 330 million Americans, just shy of 700 million. So you need all those needles and syringes. You ended up buying a lot of uh basically bought out the supply in the U.S. and then bought out a lot of the foreign supply, too. And all of it had to be, again, things you learn along the way, uh, FDA 510K and ASIP approved uh, safety needles and syringes. We've also done a lot of training because when you do that, you buy a lot of product from all over the world. You're going to have administration sites, nurses and uh, pharmacy techs that aren't used to seeing the products that they're going to get in the box. That training that's needed to make sure that they understand what they're getting and how to use it is beneficial. For example, we have what's called a, a retractable needle. Uh, one of our products is a vanish point uh, retractable needle. And uh, as a safety measure to ensure there's uh, no post-injection uh, needle sticks or uh, that the needle can't be reused, the needle retracts itself back up into the syringe uh, upon full administration of the vaccine. Just the other day, we uh, had a clinician that wasn't uh, used to seeing that sort of thing and thought they had left the needle in the arm of the patient. So helping to get that training out there and making sure people understand what they're getting is, uh, has been a big part of my, my job lately. What does your typical workday look like and how would you compare it with maybe your job as the SM3 and PM or some other job you've had before? So I did touch upon the fact that it's a lot of addressing issues as they arise and some days I uh, I will be getting on the phone with companies uh, to talk to their supply chain and uh, with their suppliers leadership about uh, how we're going to improve delivery dates for uh, critical supplies, whether it be raw materials or specialized single-use equipment uh, for their bioreactors to uh, manufacture vaccines. Uh, sometimes it's uh, running scenarios on, do we have enough needles and syringes? If we do this change to how we present the vaccine in the vials, you may all recall the Pfizer sixth dose. The vial uh, originally was uh, filled for five doses. We realized with special syringes and needles that have a low dead space, basically the amount of uh, wasted volume uh, retained vaccine, so to speak, uh, in that syringe, if there's a, a if that's a very small amount, you can actually get more than the prescribed number of doses out of a vial of vaccine because there's a certain amount of overfill. Uh, we identified that uh, in late December, and by January, we were outfitting kits to support six doses for every Pfizer vial that was going out instead of the five. So it's those kinds of things where uh, requirements changes on the fly. How do you address them? It's a little bit more uh, real time and faster moving than. Uh, any of my experiences in major program managers realm, but all the same basic principles, I guess I would say. You know, so it's interesting that you mentioned that. I would be interested in knowing what leadership tools you brought with you in your EDO toolkit that, you know, you're able to apply during your time there in the operation. There's a lot of us that are one person deep. We are a very flat organization here. So it's not like I have a team that goes off and does anything for me and, and leadership's different in that sense. It's more of the um, the initiative, the self-motivation, the uh, being able to f not only see but forecast and uh, and predict problems that that may arise, and then you know having contingency plans to address them uh, if they do. Understanding the landscape of uh, what you have available and what uh, you can make available on short notice, uh, those sorts of things. 
at an accelerated pace. You know, th- those are the kinds of things you, you kind of pick up as a program manager or a project manager to be able to move quickly on uh, changes. This is uh, maybe not leadership, but uh, just good, solid program management uh, expertise and experience have uh, served me well here. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned initiative. So that's one of our targeted attributes this year. And, you know, I'd be interested if you could give us some examples of initiative. You know, what does that mean to you, especially in the context of working the operation there? A lot of it's just picking up the phone, not being afraid to wade into the fray. Um, if you see something that needs to get done and it's either not getting done or nobody's assigned to it, just picking up the ball and running with it. What was our guidance? Uh, as long as it's, uh, it isn't unethical, immoral, or illegal, uh, make it happen. Uh, so that's uh, pretty much clear guidance on taking the initiative where you see it needs to be done. I address the the understanding, the landscape of uh, what happens with, with your materials if there's a change to uh, vaccine presentation. And uh, I guess the uh, another good example, uh, the via or the, not the vials, excuse me, the uh, needles and syringes that we needed for uh, gaining that sixth dose for Pfizer. A lot of them are coming from overseas, and uh, before we really started expediting uh, materials, pretty much shipping everything by air, uh, we had a number of containers that went uh, via surface ship and were getting hung up in the port of Los Angeles. Not a huge initiative. I mean, it's it's something I would imagine all of us as uh, engineers uh, or uh, managers, project managers, program managers would do okay, who do I need to call the Port of Los Angeles to make sure that these things are broken free and get on the next train to their destination? It's calling Customs and Border Protection to make sure that the containers are cleared through Customs and Border Protection. It's needles and syringes. So uh, has the FDA approved these to be released as cargo into the United States? Sometimes it's just, you know, go back to the who runs the Port of Los Angeles, who's their operations director, who do I talk to, you know, keep digging, digging, digging until you find the right person that can say yes to expediting the materials you need expedited. Uh, Whether that be needles and syringes sitting in a container in Port of Los Angeles, or it's quite literally moving forklifts from Ireland to Utah so that they can, as specialized equipment, can move heavy machinery into our manufacturing spaces uh, in the right configuration. Well, I appreciate that discussion, Captain. You, you know, I think it's one of the things we hear a lot from leadership, you know, making sure that we exercise that initiative. So it's good to hear some specific examples of what that looks like. And I, and I would take that as encouragement for officers, maybe on the more junior end, to, you know, to not be afraid to pick up that phone, to find somebody that can say yes, and to leverage our position as engineering duty officers to, to get the job done. So it's encouraging to hear that you were able to do a lot of that in your position. Yeah, I have to say, you know, General Perna has been uh, a remarkable leader. Uh, those uh, words I mentioned on the, as long as it's not unethical, immoral, or illegal, uh, make it happen. Uh, he has allowed us to lean forward and take risks that uh, it's refreshing to see. I think his leadership is what enabled us to uh, to really do that leaning forward to take the initiative and, and get as far as we have as fast as we have. So that actually brings up a good point. I guess I would ask. You know, compare and contrast, we'll say the general having your back in that regard and saying, hey, I will support your decision so long as you meet that criteria of not being unethical, immoral, or illegal. You know, how does that compare with maybe some of the other experiences you've had where you didn't have as much as empowerment or or knowing that you had as much top cover to get the job done? So uh, that's a uh, challenging question you're asking me there, Matthew. Uh, But uh, 
So I think we're in a different arena than pretty much any program, uh, certainly out in the open that I've ever worked with or on. We have very clear guidance and a very, we had a very clear deadline. Luckily, we got there and met it. We're still uh, executing to, to finish the job, but we could call this a, a war zone or a war type footing. Outside of a war type footing, I don't think the building in the machine allows this kind of rapid action without you know significant oversight. And that significant oversight is what I think tends to slow things down and make leadership a little bit more challenged in uh, giving free reign to freedom of movement, so to speak. No, I appreciate that. And it's actually very relevant as, you know, a lot of the discussions we're having within the community right now are how do we shift to that wartime footing, you know, particularly as we try to keep up with the shift to great power competition and the speed of competition that we're having with some of our adversaries. So it's good to know that maybe we have an example we can follow as to what some of those unique acquisition authorities look like and the speed to response. You know, you mentioned before that you're kind of an army of one, or we'll even say a navy of one in this case, but do you have any team members working with you or to whom you can reach across as you guys come together as a team? And, you know, what are some of your interactions there? Yeah, I say the the army of one, but really it's a coalition of the willing. We have worked hand in hand since May with uh, some of the actually just amazing uh, scientists uh, with uh, BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research uh, Development Agency. They are or have been doing this uh, since December of 19, January of 20, nonstop, seven days a week, ridiculous days and hours. There's a whole supported and supporting forces. We are definitely supporting them. They are the supported frontline troops. Uh, they're the ones figuring out how best to get the vaccines um, developed. And then we went off and executed the logistics of getting it out in the field downrange. I mentioned the BARDA team, but uh, it's also the strategic na- national stockpile for gathering up all the gear that we needed to put into the kitting, you know, the, the, the alcohol swabs and the face masks and face shields that uh, go to the administrators so they can administer vaccines and obviously the needles and syringes. It's working with the FDA, very independent organization, but there's different parts of the FDA. The part of the FDA that's doing the vaccine approval, they're looking at the data and saying, uh, yep, safe and uh, efficacious. That's a different part than the part I work with on a a fairly regular basis. I mentioned the FDA folks that would clear things through customs. Working hand in hand with them, literally they and Customs and Border Protection, I give them a call and they are on the ground at the site. If it's an airport that we have stuff coming in, they're at that site waiting for the aircraft to land to get it cleared through so there are zero delays. It's working with NIH, National Institutes of Health, on uh, making sure uh, they have what they need to get testing done other government agencies. I mean, we have a team here, industry and uh, government. Uh, we've got U.S. Marshals, we've got uh, FEMA, and clearly all the uh, all the members of the services. Very first day I reported, it was me and one other program manager, an Army guy, and we looked at each other like we know each other from somewhere. He and I had gone to our PMT 401 class together back in uh, the spring of 2013, I think it was. It is a small world, and making those connections definitely uh, valuable. He and I hadn't seen each other since, but you know, having that background together and me being the uh, Navy of one here for the longest time, R.J. Mikish is the guy, Colonel R.J. Mikish, uh, having him uh, help interpret Army speak for me uh, and that uh, shared past was uh, very helpful and beneficial. So let me ask you this, shifting a little bit here. 
Can you tell us maybe some of the dramas that you guys faced? And, and by that I mean, you know, the highs and lows of working the operation. Was the outcome ever in doubt? I, I mean, I know you guys talked about how you had, had to take some risk leaning forward in the production, but was there ever a question of whether or not we'd make it? I would say the outcome was never really in doubt. To paraphrase Dr. Slough, who was our former science advisor, uh, he was uh, noted as having uh, said that we had a 50-50% chance of getting one vaccine EUA by the end of the calendar year 2020. Uh, we ended up with two. Uh, now we're at three. So I don't think the, the outcome was ever in doubt. It was really a question of when. We uh, helped to enable something that was never done before. I don't know that I would characterize anything as a drama or a low in all of the work we've done. Even our challenges have been positive in nature. And I'm going to keep coming back to the Pfizer and the low dead space uh, needles and syringes. You know, depending on how you look at it, uh, okay, it made us uh, change our requirements midstream. But at the end, changing the requirements to get more vaccine out of a vial, basically, we gained an extra dose out of every vial. Uh, so every vial is still being filled to the same amount. We gained an extra uh, extra dose, so that's more vaccines into people's arms uh, faster uh, than it would have been otherwise. So no no real lows, no real drama. There's been uh, requirements changes that we have uh, taken in stride and, and gone and ahead and executed. So hopefully that helps an answer your question. Well, it does, and it's good to get that insight. You know, I'm, I'm glad the team was able to take what we might consider challenges and really turn them into opportunities. So let me ask you this. You know, you've mentioned the five versus six doses several times here, but, you know, what are you most proud of during your time at Warp Speed? Is it that or is there something else that you guys hang your hat on? I think the team and what we've accomplished here is really the uh, the thing I'm most proud of. I mean, holy cow, I can't even uh, express how proud of I am of uh, the men and women that uh, are doing this from the military services uh, to the public health service. BARDA scientists, as I mentioned, have been working this since uh, the very early days. Uh, we've got uh, UPS and FedEx who are uh, in meetings with us every day. McKesson, never knew what McKesson was before, uh, but uh, they are a huge medical product distributor. They are shipping out all of our vaccines and kidding. Uh, they're also doing a lot of our kidding. All of the federal partners, DOD, uh, FEMA, VA, Indian Health Services, I mean, everybody's laser focused on our goal and pulling in the same direction. Uh, and, and again, back to General Perna, he's been there leading the way and clearing obstacles for us. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'm proud of is, is this team and how we've been able to contribute. So let me ask you this, you know, the flip side of that coin, is there anything that you wish you could have done differently or do over? Yeah, short and easy answer, absolutely not. I can't think of a single thing we would do differently, no, not from my perspective. So what was the biggest challenge that you faced? I mean, was it overcoming the bureaucratic machine or did you guys kind of clear the road there? You know, was there a specific challenge that you can point to and say, hey, that was just really hard to get through? You know, I was thinking about that real quickly. I was like, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, that the change of requirements is always a challenge, but uh, we're used to that uh, in, in the Department of Defense too, right? Happens faster here. <laughs> Warp speed was an apt name. And when we started, everything does move a lot faster. But uh, maybe the biggest challenge is the figuring out who to talk to and, and who can say yes, right? Again, not too different from what you experience in a program management or any DOD role. Everybody's, in, almost everybody's empowered to say no, right? It's the finding the people who can say yes and uh, finding the people who can make things happen quickly, especially when everybody's on telework. 
Oh, that's a good point. You know, I didn't even think about that. That that I'm sure that created some unique problems of its own. Yeah, but once that linkages were, or linkage was made, um, the team across the board, all the the services and agencies, uh, super responsive across anything we need. You know, it sounds like you had a lot of good tools in your toolkit that you could bring to this project as an EDO. But let me ask you this. How do you think EDOs could prepare to serve if we ever have another big national project like this in the future? Great question, Matthew. So I would say, unfortunately, uh, I didn't have a lot of experience in other transactional authority or other transaction authority or rapid contracting. Uh, Certainly not something a lot of the uh, EDs with my years of experience have had a lot of familiarity with. Uh, It's just started to come out in the last handful of years. Certainly would have been very helpful to have that experience. But luckily, uh, Army Contracting Command and uh, Joint Program Office or Program Executive Office for uh, ChemBio was there and and had the tools uh, and vehicles in place to go ahead and help us execute. So I I would certainly suggest uh, some of the up-and-coming EDs uh, who are interested in program management get that uh, experience, uh, whether it's for preparing for a future national level project or even within your portfolios uh, as regular DOD uh, PMs. Program management, project management, being able to see that big picture and uh, instincts on how to execute a program. And then uh, I mentioned earlier the, the understanding your uh, what you have at your fingertips, what you have available and, and uh, contingency operations for when requirements change, what are you going to do? Having those kind of mental exercises figured out before the actual changes occur. I'm uh, going to apologize in advance. Something Vice Admiral Hill used to say, I'm not going to get it exactly as, as well as he does. But I remember when he took charge of Missile Defense Agency, he spoke to us uh, as program managers and his other senior leaders and uh, said something to the effect that he wanted us to operate at the edges of our authority. I, I was uh, really happy to hear that because uh, that's what I've always you know hoped to be able to do. Um, I took that to heart when I worked for uh, Admiral Hill in, in the agency, and now we do that every day here. So being comfortable to understand your authorities and, and where your uh, your guardrails are, and then uh, being able to maybe push those a little bit, being comfortable in that is, is I would say, critically important if you're going to come on to a job like that. So that's good homework for us, Captain, especially advice on getting smarter on OTAs. You know, I know there's been a lot of discussion about how we do that. How do we rapidly get capability to the fleet. So that's definitely some good advice and we'll take it to heart. Okay, so last question I've got for you, and I try to do this with every guest that we have on. So I am eagerly awaiting the recorded history of this time and all the good work that was done there at at the operation. But while we are sitting here waiting for those books to come out, do you have any good book recommendations for us in the interim? So uh, this time last year, maybe uh, at the beginning of May last year, I was uh, reading The Great Influenza by John Barry. Great book to learn about uh, how vaccines were um, developed, uh, how we came to to realizing we could vaccinate, how to learn about pandemics. It's all about, uh, well, it's called the Spanish flu, but uh, really originated right here in the United States and uh, our armed services helped spread it all over the world, or that's at least what what we believe now. There's a couple other books, um, The Long Walk by Nelson Mandela, very interesting book, uh, very uh, impressive. And for those who know me, uh, my running, if you want to talk about pushing internal personal boundaries, uh, your limits of endurance uh, can't hurt me by uh, David Goggins and, and Eat and Run by Scott Jerk. 
Well, thank you for those recommendations. I'm, I'm really looking forward to adding those to my bookshelf and, and getting into those. So, hey, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with us. You know, I want to congratulate you on a long and productive career and, and on your pending retirement. And, and hopefully you can go off into retirement knowing that you did some great work for the nation. And, and again, thank you for everything that you guys have been doing there. No, thank you for having me, Matt, Matthew, and uh, it's been a great ride. Going from the Warfare Center Commander at Dahlgren to Missile Defense Agency and knocking out all those firsts that we did over there, multi-year. And hey, and I actually did get to see that first ICBM intercept, by the way. That was pretty uh, uh, astounding. And then to uh, to be on a very small, uh, very quick-acting team to get vaccines out to the American people and get us back to normal or some sense of normalcy. Can't be happier. Thank you for joining us in the wardroom. Special thanks to our sound engineer, Lieutenant Andrew Rowley. If you have questions you would like our guests to answer, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at thewardroompodcast at gmail.com or tweet or follow us at wardroompodcast. We look forward to meeting again in The Wardroom.